and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back or welcome to the Intentional Performers Podcast. If this is your first time here, welcome. I love to chat with intentional performers, people that are thoughtful about how they're going about competing at their craft. And this has been a labor of love. We are almost on four years of work with the podcast and it has been amazing. We've had incredible guests and so welcome if this is your first time. If you've been here before, welcome back. And if you've been here before, you know that I also spent four years working on a book. So it's interesting that they coincided with each other. I think a lot of the learning that I've done on this podcast for the last four years has helped me cultivate this framework that I talk about in my book, Shift Your Mind, which is now available. You can get it online anywhere books are sold. If you go to a local bookstore, they should have it as well. So once again, would appreciate any support with Shift Your Mind. And for those of you that did support Shift Your Mind with a bulk order, we've been giving you shout outs on the podcast. And so we're just going to shout out a few people right now who have been really supportive. And so Jordan Steffi, who founded Atalo Prep, you can find his work at ataloprep.org. Jordan is one of the most inspiring people I've been around and Atalo just does amazing work. So if you're interested in a nonprofit that is in on the ground, in the weeds, doing work and inspiring kids every single day, Jordan and Atalo is a place that you should definitely check out. So once again, ataloprep.org. Brad Cohen is another person who bought 20 books. So thanks to Brad. Brad works at CBRE where he works both in retail and industrial and is really at the intersection of those two sectors. Uh, He's based outside the New York City area. If you're interested in connecting with Brad, feel free to reach out to me and I'm happy to connect you with Brad. And last but not least, we're going to shout out Paul Feza. Paul is an amazing personal trainer. His website is four. That's the number four dash everfit.com. And I know I've worked out with Paul before. He does amazing work and has an enthusiasm and an appreciation for not just the body, but also the mind. So thanks so much to Paul for your support with the book as well. Now to today's guest. 
Carmelina Moscato is a Canadian soccer player and Olympic bronze medalist. Today, she's a coach. She played as a center back in professional soccer in the U.S. and all over the world. And she is someone who thinks deeply about leadership, thinks deeply about soccer, how you can leverage leadership in soccer. And Carmelina is somebody that is just a thoughtful, thoughtful human. So she's going to share her mindset and what it was like playing for her national team in Canada and what it was like playing professionally as well and and really how she thinks about coaching and the future of soccer, specifically as it relates to women. And we still have a long way to go to empowering our women to have opportunities to play professionally. And she's going to talk about her journey and, and how much of a challenge it was for her to be able to do this for a living. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Carmelina. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Carmelina Moscato. Carmelina, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I love your name. I think I just want to start there. Like Carmelina is a beautiful name. It's not a name that I hear often. What are, what are the origins of your name? Can you can you give me a little background on it? Definitely. Well, first of all, honor and pleasure to be speaking with you. Uh, first and foremost, I uh, met you not too long ago, and I was really looking forward to this. So thank you. Um, with regards to my name, I mean, my mom's name is Carmela. And my dad's name is Pasquale. So you can only imagine the origins. Uh, Sicilian through and through. I mean, um, you know, in our diverse landscape these days, it's very rare to find someone who's fully something in terms of nationality or culture. So um, I'm fully Italian, Sicilian specifically. And uh, so my mom being Carmela, me being Carmelina, the little version of her, which I'm actually more like my dad, if you would ask me that part. But um, how, yeah, that's how where are you come from. How are you more like your dad? You know, I've, uh, I've watched, you know, you have role models all your life and uh, it's how they reflect back on you. And if I look at the way my mom is very, uh, she's very interesting as a woman, actually, which is, you know, she's very pleased, like she wants the people please. She wants to cook good food and watch people enjoy the food and that hospitable aspect to her character. I definitely have in me. I'm very social that way. More of a conversationalist like my dad, though. Um, so my dad will lead the conversation at the table and want to dive into hard topics and have great conversations while my mom's watching everyone eat. So <laughs> it's sort of, um, I'm a mix of both for sure. I love that. I have the gift of the gap. That's what people tell me. <laughs> and obviously Italian culture, where did you grow up originally? So I grew up, uh, born and raised in Mississauga, Ontario. Um, funny enough, 17 years of my life there, 16 years of my life everywhere else. And uh, finally back uh, in Mississauga now. So full circle at 36 years old. And what was, what was life like for you growing up? Yeah, I, I mean, in the light of everything that's happening these days with uh, the anti-racism movement, uh, the whole social justice impact. I mean, I really think about my childhood in a different way these days. And, you know, I grew up in a very diverse mosaic you know, um, funny enough, my, my parents always, you know, wanted us to marry Italian people because that's what they know and that's what they've always wanted. I said, mom, I have more of a chance of uh, marrying every other nationality that I go to school with. So you guys shouldn't have left Italy if that's what you wanted. But all to say, um, I had an amazing childhood, you know, really like played in the streets. Like the stuff we talk about now is maybe these millennials and maybe kids these days aren't experiencing something like that. But basketball every night hockey on the you know I was terrible at it but I played and uh, soccer ultimately became 
what I fell in love with and, and always felt uh, captured my heart. So yeah, just great childhood, a lot, big family. Um, nothing too notable there in the sense of, I think, I think it was a very healthy childhood. Um, and we can dive into some of the lessons, of course, at some point, but you know, really great childhood, honestly. Dive away. What were some of the lessons you took away from your childhood? Yeah, I think uh, when I look back to what almost just by organic osmosis, what I sort of interpreted was, you know, we all get along, you share the basketball, you share your hoop, you share your net, you, um, you help people. I mean, there was, uh, you strive to be your best. I mean, my parents never actually knew what I was doing at school, but they needed, if I came home with a 80% or less, it was never good enough because they wanted the best for me. Uh, so I always pushed to be a perfectionist and achieve, you know, great things. Um, while maintaining who I was. I think that was uh, something they really taught me. Always be true to who you are, but push for your push for the stars kind of thing. And uh, something I do have to mention is my, is my brother. Uh, the impact of my brother in my life. Uh, I mean, the reason I got into the sport, I think that's quite common for a lot of people, females specifically, like, you know, where does your origins, if they have an older brother, is like chasing him around. So that was me. Um, chased my brother around. Uh, they put me in organized sport at four. And then he ended up taking over my soccer team for seven years at the age of 10 years old. So he became uh, uh, not only a family member, a brother, a mentor, my coach. And um, I saw him outside of the family unit affecting a big group of us who've all moved on to do great things. Uh, Robin Gale and Leanne uh, Manchella now. So anyways, all to say, um, my brother was a huge part of why I'm a skillful player. I was a skillful player and why I had that resilience to sort of keep pushing at a really unorthodox career. You mentioned resilience. What were some of the other values your brother or your parents passed down to you? Tough love, you know, it's almost to the point where I call it now. I think the words I'll use today are like a mentorship and a sponsorship. Like he threw me in the fire, but not to the point where, you know, I was going to drown. Like he, you know, the hard lessons were there, you know, the debriefs after the big games and the car rides home, um, incentive-based, you know, if you, if you score today, you know, we're going to get you that gym membership and things that were always good for me. And I was always striving and he really poured into, um, my development, but it was tough love, you know, sometimes you need the hard, the high level honesty to actually progress and to, to actually uh, look at the truth. And I, I would say when it came down to that at around the age of 16 is when I got noticed by other entities, not just my brother telling me I was good, better, and different. I uh, made the provincial team and the youth national team. So um, as soon as I started to break away from the sort of family unit um, and be recognized by other uh, coaches, high level coaches, I started to realize I had a lot of s skills that, that allowed me to progress uh, that I'm continuing to use. Were your parents immigrants or were they born in Canada? immigrants uh 21 years old my mom was 21 my dad was like about 25 and they came over they were married in in italy came over to canada right away and started their family with my my sister who's 12 years older than me i think about italians and canadians and there's a pride that both countries have did you feel growing up this pride uh for canada did you feel a pride for italy what just talk about that word pride because I'm, I'm just curious about it such a brilliant question um and it resonates with me because playing for my national team there was a sense of patriotism there i mean there was I, i'm through and through i'm canadian you know i'm canadian and when i say that to my parents they almost take offense to it you're italo canadian carm 
And, and, and the funny part about that is I honor and respect my roots. I speak the language. I went to Saturday school till I was in grade nine, like six days a week. I was in school from grade one to grade nine. I mean, I get the, uh, the words, their dialect. I mean, not too many people, the dialect is not alive. It's not being taught anymore. So it's, it's going to die off with that generation, which is super sad, but I understand it. And so there's pieces of me that are, um, very Italian. I, I, like I said, I love the hospitable bit. I love the having people over and the loudness and, and the, the culture that is there's things about the culture I don't like, but there's a lot that I love. Um, especially the love that they share for the family. It's so big and so, um, so much abundance. And you mentioned family. So did they have brothers and sisters that also came over and, and, you know, settled where you grew up? Yeah, everyone, their whole cohort, <laughs> the whole family is, is over here. And, and since as you know, my, my, my grandparents on my dad's side have passed and I have aunts and uncles everywhere and cousins and yeah, you know, uh, we're close with a few and close with them. That's the typical Italian family. Weird things happen and you don't talk to them, but we, there's a couple of the cousins that we've kept our first cousins that we've kept in great touch. And obviously soccer is big in Italy. Was soccer something that your parents cared about? Mom, dad, obviously your brother, you said mentored you. Were your parents also into the sport? No. Not at all. <laughs> Interesting. No. no. Um, my mom didn't even, I think she grew up in a, in a time and place where she started working at 14. I mean, play wasn't part of her upbringing, which is, you know, sad in some ways and I'm sure has made her who she is and others. So, um, she didn't really think girls did that. She didn't grow up with that. My dad, all he cared about was my happiness. And I actually don't say that for the story. It's, it was true. I, I would cry after every game I didn't score. Uh, and that lasted for a few years there, like, you know, eight uh, emotional control was quite bad for me at, for, you know, eight to 14. Um, so every time I would uh, not score a goal, I would cry in the car and my dad would say, you know, he stopped the car one time. I'll never forget this story actually. He stopped the car, he pulled over, and I thought something was wrong, like we had a flat tire or something. And he said, he looked back in the back seat, tears running down my face. He said, what's wrong? I said, ah, you know, complaining, I didn't score, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. He goes, are you happy? Do you, like, do you still like to play soccer? And I said, of course I love to play soccer. I almost cared too much. And he said, if this doesn't make you happy, we will not sign you up again. Wow. That was, that was at 11 years old. Really cool. Who? what was driving you internally? So you talk about perfectionism, you talk about intensity, crying, caring. Where was that? Where was that coming from? Oh, it's so intrinsic. Like, I mean, and I, and I know that that's a recipe for success today. I can name it and say it like intrinsic motivation and resilience. That'll set you up for a great career. I can say that with research and confidence today, but at the time, it was genuine. There was no national team representation. We know visibility for women's sports is low. So it's not like I was dying to be on a national team because I had seen stars. I, I didn't see anything. I mean, I was sparked by Eric Cantona, who's a Frenchman, played at Man U, Manchester United uh, in the 90s. I was very inspired. I worked at a soccer store, uh, if you can imagine, selling retail and shoes and lacing people up. And, you know, I would, they would put videos on at the store and I'd be almost to sidetrack from my job watching this guy Eric Cantona score some of the most incredible goals and and I was a striker at the time so all I knew was I wanted to score a goal like that and I wanted to make people feel happy and I and I wanted to it's a joyful thing sport is so beautiful so I just wanted to be really good and I was actually quite skillful so I was like maybe I can do this so anyways it was sparked by sort of a, a role model that was yeah a male role model Eric Cantona to be honest 
and so you start getting some recognition nationally and, and at a younger age and, and start to be more competitive as you're going into that direction. Was dad still just saying, Hey, if it doesn't make you happy, don't do it. Was there any shift always. or change? It was always constant. That was the message. Without a doubt. If I, if I didn't want it, it was over. It was, you know, and it was definitely a choice that I, I had to make. Um, and I was quite ambitious, you know, in school and academically. So that was also something I had to figure out and balance and my time management and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I mean, honestly, my parents were very hands off and I really don't know. I've, I've not dove into this yet, uh, but I think it's a recipe. There's something there. You end up really being in soccer career wise in a lot of different ways. And we'll get into that. If you weren't going the soccer path, what would have been the path for you? Were there any other interests that were sparked at a young age or as you got in your teenage years or twenties? Is there, is there another path that you could have seen yourself walking down? Absolutely. I mean, uh, no leagues, no professional leagues at the age of 21, graduated from Penn State uh, with a degree in communications and a business minor and was very keen and eager to get into to some sort of master's program, whether I was a grad assistant and how I accomplished that I was going to look into. I ended up getting a job right away. So I got a, an assistant coaching job at the University of Louisville, which is a fantastic institution on the up at the time. Uh, Rick Pitino and some unbelievable coaches there. And, and I just thought to myself, I, I mean, I got to take this. But in terms of what I was looking to study uh, was sort of the management side of sports, sports management, business. Maybe I could be a GM because I didn't really see my playing career or a playing career for females in general as a possibility. So I wanted to still be involved with pushing the sport forward. And, you know, I never had the gender lens. I never thought to myself, I couldn't be a GM of a men's or male pro club. I just wanted to be the best maybe GM. And that's where my mind was. So, but yeah, when the job came along, it set me off on a, on a, a real big trajectory on a coaching path that really resonates and sticks today. Before we get in that. So why Penn state? Why did you decide to go to college in the States? Why, why Penn State? I got a lot of friends who went to Penn State. I live near Penn State. I, I hear cool. it far. I got it. You know, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> been on a campus and, you know, stood outside a football game. I get it. But what was the draw for you? Six hours away from home. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like you think what matters to the person and to the family. For me, I, I didn't, I wasn't educated enough to know what, how amazing and how incredible of an institution athletically and academically Penn State is. You know, and uh, I just went down for a visit. I sort of got along with the girls who were there who hosted me, the, the real basic nature of that. And all Canadians, successful Canadians, which we can dive into as well, went down to the States. You know, you didn't stay at home. You didn't go to U-Sport. You didn't go to CCAA because those programs had, you know, were, were less than. Those were the messages, right, around us. I don't believe that today. Um, I think the, it depends on what the human being and the family wants. Uh, some great institutions here in Canada for sure. And, and there's nothing to compare really is what I'm trying to say. So, so going down to the States for me was very much a beaten pathway of the people I believed and deemed to be successful. So I wanted to follow suit. I went to Syracuse university and nice. we're, we're near the Canadian border. So I remember my freshman year, I get on campus, I get in the dorm and there's a swimmer from Canada. And then there's, you know, a, a lacrosse player. There's like all these different people from Canada. And I was like, what, what's going on here? And I remember having those conversations with them about, yeah, like we want to compete in sports and we want to get a good education. Yeah. This makes complete sense. Um, 
but it, it is, it's an interesting dynamic. You, so you're just playing it. You love it. You're competing at a high level in college. Um, and then at that point, it sounds like the dream is to become a coach or get into management and be a GM. Like that's. So a- I'll backtrack a little bit because there was an overlap with the, the national team experience. So I'll just, I'm going to spend a bit of time because I think it'll contextualize everything. So, you know, 16 years old, go to the provincial team, which was just the sequential linear pathway. You go from the local to the province to the youth national team, right? That's, it was that, it was that simple back then. It's no longer. Um, so as I went through the youth national team, I was a part of the first ever U19 world cup. It wasn't even called world cup. It was a world championship for women. Uh, 2002, we ended up coming second to the States uh, and a rivalry was born. I mean, Sinclair on the pitch, Heather O'Reilly, Ashlyn Harris, like it was that the real beginning of the generation that you, you sort of see now at the tail end. Um, 20 years now, two decades worth of, of stars in that tournament. It was incredible. And uh, 2002 Canada hosts, we play a final in front of 47,000 people. Uh, unheard of youth women's girls tournament, like crazy stuff. I go to Penn State. Uh, I was three weeks late for preseason because the tournaments overlapped. I missed preseason freshman year. wasn't easy. Go through my whole career at Penn State. Junior year, get cut from the full national team because I had made it to the full national team during that whole period of time in two years and was told I was going to be the next best midfielder in the world. And, and this coach Evan Pellerud was, was a big fan of mine uh, early on. And he played a very direct style of football, which sort of detrained my skills if that makes sense. I was a midfielder, sort of the ball going over my head and back over my head. So I became very proficient at intervals, but released from the program at 19 years old, told I would never make it at the next level for various reasons. So the high and the low within a teenage year period was excruciating. It was painful, right? I mean, to to go through that sort of high and low, told I wasn't going to really go anywhere in the sport by a World Cup winner champion coach Norway 1995 so you believe him I mean okay well he knows can you yeah what was your response when you're hearing that feedback you you, you're not good enough to play at this level what what was your response can you go there do you remember absolutely I mean I felt you know they started integrating me back into with the younger players so that was a bit humiliating like oh she needs to maybe train up a bit or whatever and you know you're in college you're going through a million different things and it's like you know, as an individual, as a person, and maybe I was, you know, you're changing, you're growing, don't have the support, didn't even know I needed support, but I probably did. uh, As I was growing through those four years that are at college that are confusing in so many ways, right? And, and uh, the junior year, you know, you're sort of released without explanation, just an opinion. It's not like I got an action plan, you know, saying here, here's your individual development plan, come back and see us in a few years. It was very definitive. So it felt very like a breakup it felt very harsh um so you you know I believed it I I was just like yep I guess that's it for me yep job done 21 years old move on but as you know I I mean I had a resurrection (laughs) at 25 so but but wait 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 but it's it's move on it wasn't like f you I'll show you you're wrong like take me there because I'm I'm not really getting to like inside what yeah. your re- response is. I'd, I'd like to know like your, your psychology and if there was emotion. I mean, this was a big deal. You were on this path, this trajectory, you're kicking ass and taking names and then bloop, you're cut. hundred percent, hundred percent. I mean, listen, I, I would, I would be lying if I said it wasn't, uh, I went to uh, my summers were spent with, um, 
W League team called Ottawa Fury, and we had a lot of fun, if you know what I mean. Lots of partying and those kinds of things. And you, you find a way to get out your frustrations, you know, figuring out who you are, identity uh, at the time. So very confusing. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, really, really definitely hard time. And I really ended up throwing in the towel because um, the, the pathway for a woman playing sports at that time wasn't obvious. You know, I had maybe two friends that went over to Europe to sort of try a second division league. It was nothing at the time. This We're talking 2006. And we know how the game has just taken up uh, unbelievable strides in the last five years. But at the time, honestly, it wasn't worth the risk. I, it was too unknown. Definitely not a beaten pathway. So I could have played soccer for free every summer for three months. That's not enough to give up a job offer. And to make an to make ends meet and to be independent and do all that stuff. So but so, but when he cut when when you got cut, so it wasn't all. It it sounds like it wasn't all that devastating because like all right, that path that door is now closed. Um, it's not like there's another door for me to go down or pursue. Hold on. <laughs> you just sort of take your 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 lunch pail and you go on go on and and sort of move on. With a lot of pain. I mean, you do, you move, it wasn't like a, a clean break. I mean, I don't know how long I carried that. And, and to the point where when I was 25 years old, you know, working at Louisville, receive a call from a buddy to come try out for the national team again, you know, new coach in town and she's Italian and she would love your style of play and, and all the rest of it, you know, you need to come back Carm. I mean, the first reaction was like an F you to be fair. You know, I don't, I don't know if you know Carly Lloyd, but, in, in like studying Carly's story, there there are these moments she gets cut from a team and she has to sort of decide like how much do I really want to move forward and pursue this and um, yes, it, it is an interesting. I never thought about this till right now because um, other sports, especially men in sports, it's like okay, you're cut from the national team, but you're gonna take that and you're gonna pour it into your pro team. Even yeah, like, no, not an option. <laughs> like I've even been with major league soccer players. It's like they're cut from the U.S. national team. Now they go back to the MLS and Lucky. they can yeah, they can pour the rejection or the intensity of that feeling into I'm gonna get better so that I can get back to that level or even like pro basketball players that get cut from an NBA team. It's like, okay, well now I'm going to go to Europe and and then I'm going to work my way back. So, but it's, I, I, this is maybe a sort of male privilege thing that I hadn't even really conceptualized. Like you're cut from the highest level that you could have played at. And there really no wasn't, fallback. there was no alternative. No. There wasn't. And honestly, and I'll be, I'll tell you the timeline as well with regards to the context of 2006. You had Wusa that was completely, I mean, such a groundbreaking experience. The best players in the world played in that league, but it was short lived for reasons that are, you know, again, business and all the rest of it. It just folded. Then you have the re resurrection of a second uh, iteration of a pro league in the States. Again, Canada still till this day does not have a professional league but in the states it was the wpsl or wps excuse me the women's pro soccer league and that came in 09 so there was a dead period exactly the time i was at louisville so the wps clearly became intriguing for me again which could have probably a little bit subconsciously anyway was part of the reason i started retraining which we can get into now at 25 to try making my national team again to see where that would go um, and that was the decision that changed my life. I mean, it was a huge risk. I quit my job at Louisville to 
take a chance at, at another career and on my own terms. Because at this point, had I failed, failed meaning not progressed or got cut from the team or whatever, it was on my terms. It was with everything I could do within my control. So that's when it shifted and I really directed my anger and pain and rejection towards a new effort, which happened again, 25 years old. So that decision to, I'm going to say walk away, but pivot is probably a better word. How hard was that decision? I mean, you're at Louisville, you you mentioned it's this great athletic department, uh, you know, college soccer, um, the decision to pivot to go back to playing and training and the difference, like what went into that and why did you decide to pursue that? wasn't getting any younger I knew that I had I not taken that opportunity with the there was a little bit of window of opportunity uh with this new coach who was holding trials which had really not been done in eight years like the door was closed I mean when you especially with Canada the, the top 25 players get get really all the resources and all the attention it's not like we have this unbelievable conveyor belt of player pool production it doesn't happen so the fact that there was a little window and I mean a squeak I uh, decided to hire my best friend at the time Rosa Rago to train me get me fit give, give me three months tell me what you need me to do you need me to eat six almonds a day or something I will do it I mean I, I have the discipline in me that obsession I have it, it it's definitely in my DNA um, and so I, I did what I needed to do I quit tr- three months I wrote Carolina Marace, the coach, the new coach, an email in Italian that my mom helped me write to sort of get a shoe in somehow. And she wrote me back. (laughs) You know what? She wrote me back. Who are you? (laughs) In Italian or in English? (laughs) In English. In English. And and she found out, she found out your mindset when you're coaching, like take me to 25 year old version of you and your mindset as you're coaching. And then your mindset when you're playing and walk me through the differences between how you approached a game. I mean, (laughs) the the biggest strength I had in the job itself was the relation to the players, what they were feeling on on the pitch. And, you know, every year you get away from the game, you lose that connection you really do I mean I find it now if I don't keep playing you miss it and the game evolves and everything else so you know my biggest strength was that I understood the players I could speak to them on a level that would almost instantly connect and they they respected me on a not necessarily this like wealth of knowledge because as a youth coach you're figuring it out yourself Um, but they really respected what I had to say and then when I look at how I started to train and my approach to training it was very much similar to my approach to coaching I was very theory based I wanted to learn how to what why why am I running these uh, crazy intensive intervals like I needed to know why I was doing everything I was doing so I became a student of my training as well as I was a student of of coaching you know I, I study before I need to I can do anything that you tell me to do as long as I understand it so I, I did that and I, I hired Rosa I asked her millions of questions as to why she was making me lift at that time work at this time I mean the detail was so intriguing to me and I did it because I understood what it was going to do with this system build your base do this build that and then I I put it all together I really did all right so, but why why thinkers humble people perfectionists like those are things that help you immensely to get better to grow to train but they don't necessarily help you when you're between the lines and you're competing and and so for me like i i like 
I see this shift that occurs with elite performers where right, they're humble in preparation, but then they've got a little arrogance in performance, right? Perfectionistic in training, but then they're adaptable in performance. And so as I'm hearing you talk, I'm hearing a lot of the preparation mindset to grow, to get better, to improve. But what did you do when you were between the lines to shift your mind to make sure that you were where you needed to be when you needed to be there? I was horrendous till 28, till the next coach. I was horrendous. So to your point, I mean, maybe highly predictable in the way that I'm describing that journey, you know, 25 to 28 for me was volatile mentally. I mean, just didn't know how to control my, the emotion part. So the bit of my past had crept in because I never really dealt or had tools uh, to handle and, and the pressures at the highest level. So fast forward three years uh, to, to cut a long story short, made the team stalwart, like continued to, con- you know, I was a leader on the group uh, in the group and, and then by 28, uh, after a terrible World Cup as a, as a collective, as a country, um, John Herdman, who is going to probably dominate the rest of this podcast, uh, was the reason I ended up understanding the brain <laughs> and becoming that meticulous, prepare, prepared human being to an actual performer. Uh, happened very late in my career, 28. Talk about John. Uh, give us some background on who he is and, and how right. you all work together and what that looked like. So John Herdman is, uh, he has an incredible background. He, he took the New Zealand women's national team uh, from a group of 16-year-old girls to sort of preparing women for World Cups. Uh, he saw an opportunity after that 2011 World Cup where Canada came dead last in a World Cup in Germany. The, an opening after that occurred and he applied for the position and, and got the job. And he had nine months between a dead last performance, worst ever in Canadian history, and the 2012 London Olympic Games. So <laughs> this is the, this is going to be the, the interesting part for, for the context here. And um, John took a, a group of really broken women, and I mean broken by the sense of failure uh, and, and shame because we had done so poorly for, for Canada, got humiliated by France 4-0 uh, in one of the games. And just one of those tournaments, it just you never forget it. Uh, it's definitely a, a scar, but what you do with that was something that we needed to transform uh, and, and reshift our focus. So he said our site's not, you know, the past was about repairing the relationships internally. He set a new vision for the national team. It was about seeing our flag rise. It was about playing for Canada, getting back to the essence of why all of us gave up our entire lives to play for Canada because we did. And um, he brought a group of, of women together and taught us a bunch of tools. I mean, I know I'm sure you're aware of Carrie Evans, uh, New Zealand All Blacks, uh, forensic psychologist and mental performance coach. He was with our team. <laughs> in 2012 and we, we couldn't afford him as a program so he only worked with the six core players um, in that Olympic team and those those players were meant to obviously uh, guide and anchor the team into into performance one of which was my center back partner who got injured in the first game of the tournament so no longer could play and um, it, I'm, I'm sort of veering here but all to say we learned a lot of in- incredible tools breathing techniques grounding techniques scripting reframing um, that set us up for ultimate success and I would argue to say that that's the reason that whole graduating class is still doing amazing things I, I just hope listeners can can hear that because what got you here and I'm putting my hand up isn't necessarily what gets you there. And when I see elite athletes, a lot of times what gets them to, to a division one level or even a pro level, it's often that preparation mindset. And 
oftentimes they don't cultivate what I call the performance mindset and the things that it sounds like he worked with you on breathing, being grounded in the present, using your self-talk to reframe and uh, make sure that you're being useful and how you're talking to yourself. Those are the others. Right. And communicating (laughs) externally with others as well is that's the, the difference. That's the margin um, for a lot of people. Um, and that's why you hear pros say it's all mental. Well, it's not all mental, but you get to a level and your ability to execute on your performance becomes more mental. Getting there is a lot of physical and technical and, and all that yeah. good stuff. But the unlocking of the potential is where the mind really plays a role. Um, spot, spot on. I mean, uh, you know, in, in the... I would also add that it's the culture that we, he shifted, right? Culture is, is everything. And to the point where I'm really diving deeply these days into the four corner approach and all the rest of it, like culture is everything. It underpins every behavior, every decision that you're willing or not willing to do for the group and the service leadership and the things that take people and, and create great experiences, like things that have never been done because we were not meant to be on a podium. Like nine months later, we have a bronze medal around our neck. We're a call away from being in a gold medal match in, in that epic U.S. final uh, semifinal back then too. Like so much, we're a second away from being in a gold medal match and it was literally nothing physically changed about us. Yes, we maybe ran different. Inter- Who cares about that stuff? It wasn't that. It you wasn't mentioned, that. You mentioned leadership and communication. What were some things that you noticed with that team that was special when it came to leadership and com- communication? We, we learned how. <laughs> we learned how. And, and what I mean by that, I mean, I can give an example for, for people who maybe haven't played the sport or, or people who have. I mean, if there's a – I'll give you a specific example. There's a, a center – I'm a center back, okay? I play in the back line. I'm defending the last line of defense. And I have a midfielder in front of me, a, a lone defensive midfielder. If I say to her, hey, man on, or, well, you know, person coming, or whatever you say, we say man on. She's, like, looking like a 360, like an owl. Where? Desi, right shoulder. You know, very specific, impactful, connected – tactically connected information and I mean you know with that urgency that changes behavior like what's what's the point of communicating to positively impact the other person that they receive it well so you ask them how they prefer it you know I grew up my whole life being annoying I'm sure to people like you know kind of leading by what I thought to be good leadership which was noise you know I had to tell my uh, goalkeeper behind me oftentimes all of them uh, I don't need you to speak there that's my job thanks good (laughs) <laughs> clear concise competency so we all we all were better for it right that's the ultimate goal and as long as the ultimate goal is there and it's not coming from a cheeky place or an individualistic place team sport you're good the intentions are good you have to make sure the intention matches the impact that was that was beautiful i like want to pause and like just that was beautiful the other thing that was awesome in there was this idea of descriptions instead of evaluations and so great communication is usually very descriptive and so you went to the shoulder it's specific and a lot of times we just say oh good good job good ball or it's like what (laughs) or even like my bad right like oh my bad what like what (laughs) i i mean i understand why at times you have to own like hey that's on me but what I would love to hear, and I was just thinking about this for a team I work with, it's like, if you're going to say my bad, follow it up with what you're going to do to correct it, right? Like, hey, my bad, I'm going to put that ball through next time. 
okay, now that person knows that you're competent and you're not just wallowing in your sorrows as a victim. Like, <laughs> and so I love that you went to communication because I feel like a lot of times we talk mental skills and we, we talk about breathing. We talk about visualization. We talk about self-talk. And, and you said to me, even you said external you, you said with each other. And I think sometimes we miss that connection because you keep saying as a team sport, I even probably have a bias toward let's get the individual right. But great championship teams, they know how to communicate with each other without taking things personally and being very descriptive. Yeah. So. And that, that happened a lot for us. So we had this culture, like uh, John Herdman brought the grow culture and, you know, we had a grow room and everyone, what the heck's a grow room? It's a place with, <laughs> it's a place with computers <laughs> where they upload your footage and sometimes really targeted footage. And we would go in there as teammates, as units, as individuals. And every single day was part of the performance culture is to go in and review your footage. What was the goal of the session? Did you achieve it? What could you do differently? You know, like, and, and that became something that was just, we craved it by the end. Cringy, cringy at first, because you're watching yourself like literally fail on camera and you're embarrassed. But then you go from that sort of individualistic to, nope, I am a, I am, there is a center back on this team that needs to execute X. And if I am not that center back, I need to learn why, because, you know, we had high targets, 90% pass completion. And if you don't, guess what? You're actually letting the, the whole team down. Like the, the person in that position needs to be able to do these things. So we had some real great targets to understand what excellence meant per position, which took away the personalization. It was no longer the Evan Pellerud or the Carolina era where I was told by, it was somebody's opinion of me. It was no, 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 no. There's a center back in this squad that needs to do this for the, for the team. The whole thing shifted. It was brilliant. It was like mind blowing. And, and it seems so normal now because we've gone through it, but I don't know how many people train like that. I mean, I, I honestly don't know. Culture, every organization has a culture and that's why the word gets played out is because every, or we, we have good culture. We have bad culture. We have fearful culture. We have fearless culture. Like we all have a culture and I think the best cultures are very intentional with the language that they use. So a grow room, like just calling it a grow room is all it. it the underpinning of that is we want to grow, get better, learn, uh, develop. Like they could call that the, the room of truth. They could call that the, the shame room. Like, they're, they're, like <laughs> totally. there's, there's options. And so I, language to me is so, so important. And when you listen to culture and you try to identify culture, just listen to the language, listen to people when they're interviewed and what are the, what are the words that they're using? And what you'll find with great cultures is there's usually, there's usually a vocabulary that they have that the group is using and that they understand what those words mean. Like they, they know actually the definitions of those words. And so mm -hmm. culture is about behavior, but it's also about language. And as I'm hearing you describe the team, I'm hearing, you know, yes, we behaved a certain way and we had language and we had a system that we knew what it was to be a center back and, and what was being asked of us. And it was clear. Very clear. Yep. The role clarity was clear. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So from 28 on, um, you felt like you, you had some things started to click as far as preparation and performance. 
what were some of your routines the day of a game? What would you do to get yourself ready mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually? We haven't really talked about spiritual. And as an Italian, I'm, I, I'm curious if there was a religious framework that you grew up with and if that still is something that's a part of you. So feel free to go into any of that. I know I just asked a very loaded question, but routine, is routine on game day. And then I'm also curious about spirituality. Yeah, fantastic. And I, I think I'll address sort of both as, you know, as we go, because when I look at my game day, I went from the crazy person with a lot of energy dancing with the, the group that did that in the locker room, getting that those nerves out to the one who was by myself listening to meditation and music. <laughs> like I was I, I literally transformed and that silence was what I needed, craved and knew was the key to my success by the end of my it almost everything happened a little too late i almost wanted those early 20s back but that's okay um, that's pretty no typical though. those early 20s i like you need that energy you need that like i, I laugh when vets like 30 and older they always are like oh if i knew this when i'm, I'm like no you probably <laughs> wouldn't play with that fearlessness that recklessness like there's yeah. you have to it it there's all of it is a progression. Now there are 22, 23 year olds that are able to combine both, but you know, you've had a pretty awesome career. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go there. Anyway, go on. That's true. No, thank you for that. I appreciate that, that comment for sure. Um, Yeah. So I went, for me, it was about, you know, we, we sort of called it the fundies. I mean, just whatever fundamentals, making sure your movement, your mobility every day, your sleeping was what you needed it to be. So everyone was unique that way for me, it was about, be seven hours really uh, if I really got down knowing uh what I needed to eat so even a, an amazing part of my Olympic journey was understanding I was eating about half of the carbs that I actually needed because I never sat down to calculate that so we had like a nutritionist come in from the sort of Canadian Sports Institute and do an activity with us at 28 years old how much carbs do you need after a big game and I was like oh my god <laughs> I have been eating uh yeah anyway so doubled my carbs uh, going into the olympics like really there's a lot of precision around it you know like i knew exactly what i needed so the fundamentals on game day and other every day were taken care of especially the mobility um every morning with the sports uh, sports scientists but we should have been doing that anyways on our own and um so that was my game day routine. I mean, nothing crazy. A lot of the music was very intentional, very, uh, no, I don't even remember, but calming, very calming music. Um, last few communication to, to very specific to my teammates based on the game plan, based on the day, very specific to the day. And uh, I had a script every game. I knew exactly my three things. Uh, I'll give you an example in the semifinal against the U.S. in, in 2012. Uh, we were we were tasked, myself and Lauren Sesselman were tasked with managing, well, in the pole back line, but especially us, with Alex Morgan and Abby Wambach. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> no, but <laughs> but really, uh, we were super clear. I mean, if Abby went up, came off the front, meaning that, you know, she would have tried to take us away from the line and create spaces and gaps. If Abby came off the front, don't move. Guess why? She's not going to turn. We had watched hours and hours of film. She was just going to flick to the space you created for Alex. So Abby comes off the front lever. Alex, Abby goes off the front lever. Alex comes off the front. You have to smash her. You have to go with her. You have to try to intercept. You have to try to uh, avoid a turn because she is going to play Abby in. So, you know, that level of specificity was at that game. Simple. Sounds simple, but it took hours of film to get to that simplicity naturally. So, you know, that game was very much about that managing that managing my fullbacks not getting too high and things of that nature so i had a script three things boom boom 
And if things were off, I knew it was one of those three things. Did you, how nervy were you for the World Cup? I mean, you played in three, uh, three World Cups. Did you, did you change from, I think it was like 2003, 2011, 2015. Did you notice how you evolved and how you approached those, those games and being, I mean, this is now the, this is it, right? Like there, there's no greater thing for a soccer player to, to participate in a World Cup. Uh, what did you notice about yourself as you went through those, those experiences? 2003, lucky to make the team, came off a stress fracture, played one minute, took out Shannon McMillan, done. <laughs> That's my World Cup in 03. 2011, uh, did everything I was asked to do while other players were you know, in different environments. I was in the Canadian environment doing everything I needed to do, trained to be the center back the team needed, didn't play a minute. 2015 comes around, ready to go, really genuinely thinking on play, Every game, every minute, be, be that person who was uh, the, the anchor in the back line, played a game and a half. So World Cups for me were now I reframe to the opportunity, the way it connected us to our country, the way the sisterhood we created, like the things we were willing to do for each other. But at the end of the day, on a personal, if it's what's in it for me, kind of level, that very maybe low level, disappointing. I didn't have these uh, unbelievable World Cup experiences. The experience itself, obviously, I don't want to sound uh, arrogant or that I've taken those for granted. Please don't get me wrong. But as an athlete, you're shooting for, the, for something, uh, an expectation you have. And yes, you give yourself up for the team. And, and, I, and I did my best. I did that to the best of my ability. 2015 was a little harder, if I'm dead honest with you. But uh, this was my last go. I knew it would have been my last go and uh, it still didn't get to be the, the role that I wanted to be. The one I was, I was trying to be the anchor for the back line. I was trying to be the one that would keep the team together and work my whole career for that. Never got it. We're going to get into coaching in a bit, but before we do the last world cup, the U S national team, there was this whole story about them being arrogant and running up the score and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. You're so people aren't going to see your reaction to this, but you just went from like smiling to like very serious. And then you, you sort of shook your head back and forth as if no, like what's your response to the media, um, you know, and sort of the response to the U S national team, uh, the women's team doing that. They are who they are. That's why they win. Okay. Like you can't have it both ways. You can't love what they stand for and then take away that they stand. They earn their, they earn the right to celebrate in the way that they want. I don't believe in the sportsmanship bit because what are we trying to do? Use, use women as role models to be in a box and show certain behavior. No chance. If you score a world cup goal, I expect you to celebrate. You worked your whole life for that. Megan Rapino, three, three ACLs and she's back scoring and winning an MVP. You're telling me she's not going to celebrate. So for me, all that stuff about sportsmanship, I think we've been sold a script and I think we need to tear it up uh, massively because at the end of the day, um, you know, Thailand being beaten 13 nil or whatever the case, there's a whole story there. You got, you know, we all need to develop the sport better. They weren't even supposed to be there. There was a DQ and they had to come into, to, take a placeholder for the AFC, Asian Federation. So like understand the story enough to know what it meant because Thailand didn't even feel the way that most people felt about the U.S. And so for me, I was just like, let, let them be because they are changing the world. 
I love it. Uh, the the energy. What what's going on in your body as you're talking about that? Like what just happened oh, for you? Up. Yeah, you got fired, fired up. up. There, and there was the competitor that I think you sort of talked about throughout. And uh, I agree with you. It's something I actually mentioned in my book that I I just finished. Is uh, that team was labeled all these things and like the double standard first of all that exists for for women and men, and then second of all, like shouldn't sports be joyful? Shouldn't we be celebrating? Shouldn't totally. we? Uh, be excited. I think, you know, American football, we had this, like when they scored a touchdown for, they weren't allowed to do anything. And then they changed it back because they realized it wasn't fun. Like let the guys do some sort of dance. It's entertainment. And like, let's not take this thing too seriously. It's a sport. And we play, we play sports just like we play instruments, just like you play on, (laughs) on a stage. If you're an actor, like, you want your musicians just standing there you want beyonce just coming out and not you know smiling and and like you want shakira doing that like no one's saying you know what beyonce and she, well actually people are people do say that they should tone people it down do. It, it's, it is an opinion that exists and it's yeah. just not one uh, obviously we both you know share we don't share that opinion but i just see it as this totally different if it's targeted towards thailand in some way it was so not it was just the general to your point excitement and joyfulness of of goal celebrations um which is the whole point isn't it and you want your 10 year old to not do that okay let's talk about 10 year olds and how we can act and um you know and and by the way you can celebrate the goal and then still shake the hands of the teammate the next next you know at the end of the game that's exactly right so it's not targeted or malicious, which yeah. I don't, I never perceived it to be. No. Okay, cool. I was curious to get your thoughts on that. Talk yeah. to me about coaching. Let, let's start winding down as we, we talk about your experience as a coach. Cause you've, you did play professionally all over the world and um, had some probably pretty cool experiences as a player, but also as a coach. So talk about your experience as a coach and what that's been like. And um, have you, have you, changed how you think about coaching from the time you were 25 till now uh just give me some of your insights on on coaching yeah big time i mean uh so the story continues with john retired in 2016 he hired me uh uh, myself and rian wilkinson right away um to enter something called elite player elite coach mentorship program so he had targeted me because near the end of my career i had become maybe what i was at the beginning what you said earlier the the overthinker i was you know maybe less in my instincts more in my brain and so he so we always talked about that you know you're, you're thinking more like a coach Carm. let go of that you got to be a player like and i sort of was having trouble with that near the end i was trying to maybe control too much and probably dive into that another time but all to say um Moving on, uh, he gave me a, not only a mentorship, but a sponsorship. He hired me to work with youth national teams. Uh, I had about, you know, maybe five different roles, but all in the spirit of learning. Um, and that lasted one year until he had actually moved on to the men's national team, which is sort of unheard of and precedent setting. I mean, never been done. Uh, men's women's coach going to men's in the same organization. So um, I was very grateful for that year because I was thrown into the fire. And what I mean by that is given a big role, a regional manager of talent identification and development. I mean, young, uh, in the eyes of others, obviously, uh, experienced in one way, maybe not as a coach, and going in running model sessions and 
things where people are like, do you even know what a model session is? <laughs> you know, but really given that opportunity to, to succeed and to fail uh, with that great, great support network, you know, quarterly reviews and all very, very well done. And then um, I went away after that as the opportunity sort of didn't no longer existed. Things change, right? People move and things change. And I went to Australia for one year to take on a semi-professional team because I was like, well, what the heck does CARM think? <laughs> not Canada, not the national team, not that tactic. What the heck would CARM do with a bunch of players that I need to put into a successful formation and, and do, uh, do a job? So that was one of the best, most enriching years of my life. Living, uh, living in Australia became more philosophically sound in what I believe. And, and really, when you say, how have I evolved from 25 to now? I mean, coaching really is about asking good questions and extraction of and helping people see their own potential and, and shutting up probably half the time. So I talk a lot less than I used to when, I, when I'm in coaching mode and working with youth and um, principle-based coaching, you know, no prescriptive, all the things I think that are now more modern, but I really believe in human potential and trying to unlock it. So good. What, what else did you learn when you were in Australia and now all of a sudden it's your philosophy and your, your, what else did you learn as you took on that, that seat on the bench? There, there's always a way. I mean, it, it, I guess in women's sports and in this particular case, it was a semi-pro, very underfunded sort of program. But I had these coming from a national team to sort of an underfunded program. So I had things in, in aspects for corner programming that I wanted to execute and was told, no, don't have the money. No, can't do it. So I found ways. Can you go into four corners? What do you tell people sure. what you mean by that? Yeah. So it, it's almost uh, it's a, a, a it's long-term player development. But, you know, you look at um, – uh, four aspects of your program, mental performance, mental coaching, mental performance. You have social emotional, which is sort of dealing with the human being, the technical tactical, and then the physical, which is broken up into sort of medical and sports science. So in a perfect world, you have experts in each field. In a perfect world, you have one leader, one coach, one vision and experts pouring into that. That is that for me, that is still quite probably one of the best case scenarios. I go to Australia and I have none, nothing. It's like one coach and, and a part-time assistant realities of coaching but I still had a big vision and I still knew the importance of addressing four corners so you have to be all things to all people but can you be and are you good enough to be so for me I ended up actually hiring a remote sports scientist from the Seattle Rain who is now the OL Rain uh, Nick Lehman who ended up I paid him a bit of money that I could I scrounged and he helped me from uh, I would report to him after sessions and he would are the RPEs uh, rate of perceived exertion you know all the things and I made, I tried to make it all happen. I understood psychology to a different degree so I could be the psychologist, the, the, the mental performance coach for the players and reframe and rescript after bad performances, try to give them tools and things that I had learned. Um, social, emotionally, I, the understanding, the understanding of culture and, and language and how to build that. Cause I had gone sort of gone through it, but these women, again, meeting them late in their careers, not never having that training. So a lot of amazing real life challenges, you know, I want to play a four, three, three. I don't have the players to play a four, three, three. So how, how much of an expert am I in another system? Uh, but it's principle based. So I'm actually quite good because I know it's just time and space. Love it. Those kinds of things. You mentioned the word vision throughout this conversation. What's your vision for yourself going forward? Uh, you, you caught me at an interesting time. I mean, this, uh, listen back in a year and, probably have a laugh about it but you know I, I'm, I'm the manager of women's professional football something that's never been done in Canada and I'm the only position 
working with it with my uh, great leader and boss, Eva Haveris, at my company, Canadian Soccer Business, who's trying to continue to build the landscape. So I, I'm, I know that I have a place in not only doing something that's never been done, but that's nothing to do with what I actually want to do is building a pathway for these women. I mean, what I experienced at 21 is still happening and that's, that's wrong. It's wrong. It's wrong on all accounts. It's, you know, and I, I want to say that publicly because I think there's so much that could have been done in the last 20 years. It's not about looking back done. That's been done. What's the next chapter? How can we build um, a, a better future for, for our women that they don't have to travel all over the world and, and do that. So that's, that's a big part of my MO right now. Um, I still want to continue developing my coaching because it's, it's part of who I am. I, I believe it's part of my DNA at this point. And there's no, you know, ironically, I go through all the hoops, right? I'm a UEFA A coach. It's the highest you can be other than a pro licensed coach. And you need a pro team to get a pro licensed coach, but we don't have one in Canada. There's no opportunity there. So I'm sitting there with a dusty UEFA A waiting to, to coach and do, yes, Carm, if you really want to do it, go all over the world. You got to go. You got to go find it. You got, you know, you're not hungry enough. BS. I'm very hungry. I just want to create, I want to create this league and coach in it. <laughs> would you, would you rather be the commissioner of a pro Canadian soccer league or the head coach of the women's national team? I put Ooh, you in a box. You're asking you in the box. hard questions. I know. Man, honestly, I don't see it as a this or that. I really, really don't. And I'm not trying to dodge. I'm not trying to dodge. I, I really, I think both opportunities would make huge impact. And that's, that's what I want to do. All right. I hate when people put me into a box, so I'm going to let you slide. <laughs> uh, like, you know, sometimes I'm on the other end and, and being interviewed and I, I, they're like, you know, would you rather do this or that? And I'm like, I, both? Give me both. So... <laughs> I, I get it. I get it. I'll let you, I'll let cool. you off the Thank hook. It, it is interesting to me though, as I hear your journey, like there was this idea of being in the business of sports and then there's this coaching side to you. And I just interviewed a woman who's the athletic director at Johns Hopkins university and, and she loved coaching, but then decided to get into administration. Uh, one of the people I love who's near and dear to my heart, Tanya Vogel, who's the athletic director at George Washington university, who was a, stud of a soccer player and like you came close to playing professionally got cut and then moved along um so but i do think that's an interesting thing maybe maybe we'll continue to unpack it for yourself because um one of them there's a path to right now um if you wanted to and the other would be more entrepreneurial and creating and innovating um and you know one is sort of does have a framework and has a system in place to pursue. And the other would be, you know, all kinds of failure along the way, not to say that they both won't have their successes and failures, but I think they're just different. So, um, yeah, there's a part of me that feels that I, every day or week, month, year kind of thing that I'm not coaching. I feel that I'm getting rusty. Like the game is moving on at, at an exponential rate. I mean, based on the you know analysis and and the way that we're able to sort of transform and understand coaches and communicate coaches' philosophies at the highest level. So everyone's stimulated and overstimulated, maybe. But all to say, I know the game is moving so fast. So there's this bit of me that's sort of guilty, right? Like, should I be? I'm missing hours on the grass, just raw hours where I can fail and have a great session and have a crappy session and do all, do all of that. And 
So there's a, that, that must say something. I must be missing the field a little bit for sure. It's three years from now and there's a pro soccer league in Canada. What happened? <laughs> what happened? We got uh, our federation to, to, under, to, to continue to support that vision or to start supporting that vision. We had the business arm commercializing it and I'm coaching in it. Are there, how many teams are there? Eight. Is it set up similar to the league in the US NWSL or different? Different. Uh, Canada's, we have some airline monopolies, like travel's stupid. Like it's so expensive. So we would have to divide our country into a few pieces <laughs> and make it a little bit affordable, regional and event based. And it would be different and future proofed. I mean, it, we have to digitalize this thing. I mean, I have a lot to say about this. Like I said, this is a whole, this is what I do for a living now. So um, I, I see it very differently. I don't see a coast-to-coast -coast league uh, like we see in the NWSL and the current Canadian Premier League. I, I don't see that working for the women's side. We need to create more competitions, more spectacles, but respecting the development and making sure we take care of how we get there. Awesome. That sounds like a whole nother podcast. So we're going to, we're going to just, <laughs> I think we're going to, we're going to close there. Carmelina, if people want to learn more about you, I know you're on social media on Twitter and Instagram, where can they find you and follow you and anything else that you're passionate about that you want to just plug, feel free to, to plug away. Yeah. Thanks for that. I mean, uh, Twitter and Instagram, my two active accounts at Cmascato4. Uh, my Twitter account is mostly used for sort of sharing educational resources, very pro women, very uh, equality, equity based type type work, very sports based, but not always. Um, and my Instagram is sort of family, dog, and partner. <laughs> very, I've gotten away from showing uh, too much of my personal life to sort of shift right a little bit. So uh, that's my Instagram. Probably not that interesting to most, but and then the rest of it is just. Um, yeah. I mean, exploring human potential, you know, your own and others. I think that that's the exciting part of life and I'm just stay curious. I love it. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And my new book comes out in October called shift your mind. You can read about that in October and it's available for presale on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, wherever you get your books. Carmelina, Super fun to chat with you. We've met now a few times over Zoom. I'm looking forward to the day where we can meet in person and have a coffee or a drink or whatever, uh, whatever <laughs> suits you. And uh, wishing you all the best. I know you're you're out in the woods and enjoying some some vacation. So go enjoy it, and uh, we'll we'll catch up soon. Brian, thank you for doing what you do. You are changing lives. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. What's the point of communicating? To positively impact the other person, that they receive it well. So you ask them how they prefer it. You know, I grew up my whole life being annoying, I'm sure, to people like, you know, kind of leading by what I thought to be good leadership, which was noise. You know, I had to tell my uh, goalkeeper behind me, oftentimes, all of them, uh, I don't need you to speak there. That's my job. Thanks. Good. <laughs> Clear, concise competency so we all we all were better for it right that's the ultimate goal and as long as the ultimate goal is there and it's not coming from a cheeky place or an individualistic place team sport you're good the intentions are good you have to make sure the intention matches the impact